thank you for downloading this recording of Power, Belief and the Performative, a panel discussion produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the Vernissage weekend of the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. Facilitated by the Art Gallery of South Australia's contemporary art curator, Lee Robb, this panel coheres around the resurgence of the performative in contemporary practice, as seen in the work of artists Michelle Brown, Sandra Johnston, Destiny Deacon and Chris Bond. Well, good afternoon, everyone, um, and welcome to the session on, um, on the performative in contemporary practice. Uh, my name's Lee Robb. Um, I've just recently started at the Art Gallery of South Australia as the Curator of Contemporary Art last week. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to meet all of you and welcome you here. Um, I'm joined by four incredible artists with um, quite diverse practices, so I think we're going to go in many um, exciting directions today. We're looking forward to, to the chat. Um, I'll introduce you um, shortly. Firstly, I just wanted to acknowledge that um, we're meeting today and hosting these talks on uh, Ghana land and to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians um, all across the Adelaide Plains. And fantastic. It's such amazing to, it's amazing to see such a, a great group of people. Now, we don't have microphones today, so, yeah, so there well, are still... So, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of seats in the front. There's so. a lot of seats you in the front. You people non-committing down there at the back. We can still see you, so you might as well come up. Come forward. <laughs> come forward. Good teachers. Yeah. 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 Good teachers around here. Um, so, anyone who can't hear, um, please move, move down the front. What thing were you at? <laughs> yeah, there still time. Come. Come down. <laughs> Bring up some other seats. Great, great. Um, well, um, I'm delighted to introduce Chris Bond, who is um, one of the participating artists in Magic Object, um, and hopefully um, you have all had a chance to see his work downstairs here in the Samstag. Um, in the Samstag, they're meticulously installed, and. Um, Chris is going to talk us through the performative aspect of how he makes those and the productive methodology behind those, which is which is uh, very revealing. Then we're going to have a chat with Destiny Deacon, who needs a little introduction. Um, uh, one of the, the greatest living Australian artists. Oh, the knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Cool it's, it's true. It's true. Um, and, um, and then we have, um, we have uh, some visitors from Ireland. Um, so we have um, Sandra Johnston and Michelle Brown. So Sandra um, joins us from, from Belfast, but is currently in um, Northumbria. And um, Michelle Brown is coming from um, Dublin. So we've got a really interesting mix of visual, uh, visual arts and performance artists that very interdisciplinary approaches um, to how uh, performative functions in everyone's work. So we're all excited to have a chat and, um, and talk through some of those ideas. But I'm just going to hand over to, to Chris Bond. Many of you will have seen his work. Please come in and there's plenty of seats at the front. So, um, 
Yeah, Chris um, originally, well, he studied fine art at RMIT in the 90s, um, and so many of you will have seen his work exhibited since about 2000. Um, you might have seen his work at, um, at ACCA, um, at Gertrude, Blindside, CCP, Bus Projects Museum, um, the Heidi Museum, um, and a lot of his work revolves around the invention and embodiment of fictional artists and creating scenarios, and also creating an alter ego, um, who is very much a part of, um, of how, how you make these very, very refined um, paintings and installations, ultimately. So I'm going to hand over. Thank you very much, Chris, and congratulations on your work. And over to you. Thanks, Louise. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to read from notes, and I apologise for that. But um, I thought um, I'd talk a little bit today about how I use um, performance as a productive methodology um, and how that might be considered performative, um, particularly in relation to the way that I invent um, and inhabit various characters um, and get them to actually do things for me. Um, so the image up on the screen at the moment is of the work downstairs and hopefully most of you have had a chance to have a look through it. But um, what I'm going to do today is kind of speak to this work and also to some previous works where I've invented characters and lived through them. Um, so a lot of what I do um, might be considered um, performance, but it usually doesn't have an audience. Um, so it's probably better described as um, action. Um, my practice is very private. Uh, I get into character, um, I act out scenarios, um, and I produce things, and that's kind of how I make um, a mark on the world. So these actions are made only for documentation and production. Um, so the work downstairs is kind of the, the public face of something that's usually quite um, private for me. So um, you might be wondering who that is. He's a, quite a dark figure there. Um, this guy is a, um, a fictional Norwegian character that I've invented, and his name is Thor Rasmussen. Um, and you might have seen Tor's kind of, name kind of popping up amongst the work downstairs. Um, and what I've done is um, lived through him to um, create imagery and text for the work downstairs, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more in detail about, um, and also to kind of drive a, a narrative position. Um, and although Tor is uh, an inventive character, um, for me he feels uh, very real. Um, he kind of acts a little bit like a medium that I work through. Um, so the relationship between Tor, who I perform as, and myself as an actual person um, involves a lot of pushing, pulling and confrontation um, and also attempts at um, control. And these are all at the service of taking my practice um, somewhere else, far away from my capacity as a kind of a, a single individual. Um, and although... Um, Tor's a pretty new figure for me. He's, he's only been around for the last two years. Um, for the last 10 or 15 years, um, I've been inventing other characters to do things for me. Um, and they've taken me to places that um, are usually fairly uncomfortable, um, sometimes a little bit dark and demented. Um, and this way of working ba uh, began back in 2004, um, where invent I invented a character called um, Warren H. Feldmar. Um, and this is a guy that I imagined was um, the head of security at Universal Pictures Studios um, in the 1950s um, and working alongside Alfred Hitchcock. 
Um, what I did was I, I wrote inter-office memos to Hitchcock in the guise of this guy called Feldmar. Um, and I constructed this quite um, uh, bizarre narrative that involved gas inhalation and eventually murder. Um, and these memos were presented as documentation um, in an exhibition that also included um, a lot of additional fictional support material, um, such as newspaper articles, catalogue essays, um, even um, fictional sponsors. And all these kind of different components functioned as um, an aid, um, not just to fool an audience of the historical plausibility of the seemingly quite bizarre scenario, um, but more importantly to fool myself. Um, because for me, self-deception um, is key. Uh, I actually need to believe in the reality of the fictions that I've created in order to kind of um, genuinely inhabit these people and to kind of get outside of my own self. So um, since um, Warren Feldmar, I've created a number of other figures. Um, this is a work um, by the um, visionary Australian outsider artist um, called Edith Mayfield, and she was an early 20th century figure who I invented, um, and I made work for her while in character. So these were shown at um, um, Heidi Museum of Modern Art, so in an ins institutional setting where um, historical artefacts with um, explanatory plaques are generally considered um, as that. So a lot of people kind of took Edith on board as a real person, and I think I did as much as anyone else, but I kind of, when I was making work, by her, um, I kind of um, lived her in a way. Um, next um, I've also um, invented a fictional curator called Brant Heslow, um, and he put together an exhibition of uh, painted light bulbs by some Finnish um, factory workers, um, which you can see there in a couple of shots. Um, uh, Sorry, a few images to show. Um, and more recently, um, I created a, a collective of five different artists um, who are each um, obsessed with the occult. And um, the narrative behind these uh, were that they um, they'd gone on a caravan trip in search of this um, um, obsidian lava flow in central Victoria, and um, they'd found it and, and made um, artifacts while kind of. Um, um, being susceptible to the force of this um, uh, rock field, uh, but then they suddenly disappeared, and their caravan was then discovered. I think about a, a decade after, um, I think about two or three kilometres to the north, uh, semi-submerged in a, a riverbank, um, and so all the components uh, that you can see here were kind of dredged out of that caravan and then displayed. Um, but these were all works that I again made in character as each of these these artists. Um, so there's uh, there's one of the works that's a kind of a like a walking stick or um, save, uh, and this is a, a kind of a totemic mask um, that they may have used in in performance um, while they're in the caravan. Um, so each of these um, characters has got really strong narrative support. Um, which I find useful in, in kind of establishing motivation and also figuring out what I can actually do um, as them when I'm confronted by the circumstances in which they apparently live. 
And the point of working in this way is to actually avoid um, conditioned response. So it's not really, it sounds like a role-playing exercise, but, um, and it's not really designed even to, to promote a discussion about identity, but it's, it's really about avoiding all of those limits that, um, um, that we place on ourselves. And being in another body allows uh, that to happen. So it's not just acting, not just simulation, but actually um, being. Um, so you probably notice that when I talk about these characters, um, particularly Tor Rasmussen, um, I talk as if they actually exist, um, because in a way they do in my own mind. Um, Tor is, um, is very real. It's a little bit darker, you can make it out. Um, so in late 2014, he came into being, and um, he's this Norwegian artist um, who performs under a number of pseudonyms himself, uh, notably Kraken. And he travelled to Australia to stay with me for a six-week uh, domestic residency program as part of a broader international program um, called Arts Day, which I also... Exciting. Yeah, exciting for, for me to have him over. Um, now, this is... I mean, all of this structure is invented, um, but it's become kind of so pervasive um, in my life that it's, you know, it's become a kind of reality. Um, during the stay with me, he caused a lot of um, upheaval. He's quite a threatening character. He tormented me and, and was quite frustrating. Um, and what I did was I began acting as him at home and in the backyard um, before um, introducing other characters into the mix. So that's him and I um, in the backyard. Um, so I invented a character, um, Julie Redfern, who's the, um, the program manager of Arts Day. And there was a uh, quite a lot of um, email correspondence between um, Julie, myself, and Tor um, when things kind of went horribly, horribly wrong, um, <laughs> as they usually things usually do in my work, unfortunately. Um, so this kind of way of working obviously um, involves a fair amount um, of self-deception. But my thinking throughout all this is that um, the performance of this kind of fictionalised identity. Um, it permits like a, a temporary removal of the singular self from the process of making. Um, so it, it opens up this psychological space where um, you're kind of free uh, to invent um, without restriction. Um, so Tor kind of currently um, kind of roams around at like, the periphery of my existence. Um, but you know, who is he exactly as a, as a person um, and why does he need to be? Um, why, you know, why embody a fictional characterization, why not just authentically self-represent? I've always argued that, um, that the removal of the singular self and splitting into these multiple fractured components um, is beneficial, it's, kind of, it's productive for me and it's um, empowering. So in psychology this is known as dissociation, um, this kind of fracture, and it's not really, it's not technique, it's a, it's a pathology and conditions like multiple personality disorder um, are quite well-known examples of that kind of um, fracturing. But what I'm interested in is the willful use of it. Um, and my use of this, um, of dissociation as a technique, is really just a convention in, in other disciplines. Um, in acting, it's a technique that's been used for um, nearly a century, um, since the days of teachers like uh, Stanislavski and Chekhov. And they, they call their technique divided consciousness. And simply, it's just a way of avoiding the self um, with all the self's baggage um, in order to bring something from outside the self into the role that you're inhabiting. And um, 
writers of fiction also work in a similar way where they um, insert characterizations of themselves into um, their own narratives. Um, but within the visual arts, um, this kind of approach isn't really um, practiced. Um, instead, artists usually um, they use self-representations as vessels for carriage um, of the world upon uh, the impact of the world upon um, an artist's uh, particular subjectivity. But I found that there's a lot to gain from actually dropping all that. Um, when you when you do so uh, and hand yourself over to an invented self or multiple selves, there's um, an opportunity to experience um, a previously hidden level of autonomy and agency, which perversely feels quite um, authentic. Um, so anyway, back to the works that I've made here um, downstairs. There's been um, a bit of a battle in fully dropping the self in exchange for Tor Rasmussen. So I've had to put Tor on a little bit of a leash, um, whereas previously I've, I've kind of allowed him free reign to um, create while I've been in character. So this is kind of a little bit of an experiment in control for me, allowing him to have access to my body when I choose so. <laughs> I won't talk for much more. Um, so he was there at the beginning of the process um, when I sat in darkness um, in character as Tor uh, with a stick of charcoal and paper. Uh, and during these um, drawing sessions, I maintained a really rigid body structure and allowed him to uh, take control of my arm and hand movements. Um, and the, the drawings that came out of that were later scanned and um, fitted into the designs of the, of the um, painted library books that you can see downstairs. Um, and the titles of each of those library books uh, were also created in um, sessions where um, I kind of got into a, a bit of a trance-like state, uh, again under Tor's control, um, and vocalised. And the words that came out of that, those vocalisation experiments, became the titles um, of the books. Um, so here are some of those, the words that came out of those sessions. Um, so Tor is the author of these books, and so he's, um, and he's in a way he's their um, creator as well. Um, so Tor um, disappeared for a while. Has actually worked on the designs of these books and invented the call numbers, the barcodes, the publishers, um, and a fictional library um, from which the books apparently originated, um, uh, the Levitt University Library. And you can see that's. Uh, from underneath one of the workshops, one of the barcodes at the library there. Um, and I also created um, three other um, painted books shortly afterwards that um, form a kind of a, a narrative support structure. Um, so they extend the fiction of the five library books but um, in different directions. Um, there's a reference book here. Um, which references um, the call number, that, the library call number that was used in the, um, the library books. And um, um, another one here um, that appears to chronicle the burning of the Levitt Library and its rebuilding. Um, um, as well as a paperback gothic um, romance novel um, by an author um, by the name of T. Rasmussen, who, who may be Tor Rasmussen, but he may not, it may just be a coincidence. Um, and then um, Tor returned at the end of the process, um, and I burnt um, a book in the backyard while in character. And I was looking for a way of making Tor's presence um, more tangible 
um, to give him a little bit more room for expression. Uh, and I came to the idea of burning it while in character. I was looking at all the um, stacks of cancelled library books that I'd been collecting for source material, um, and it um, seemed appropriate. Um, uh, this is the last image. Um, so there's an, an email that came soon after um, that burning. Um, so while, again, while in character, I wrote an email as Tor to myself. Um, and Tor seems kind of angered by my attempt to use his character as a productive mechanism and appears to warn me about the associations that I make between him, myself and the Levit Library, um, for which he seems to insinuate that he's burnt. Um, while encouraging um, a real response. Um, so he sends me the burnt book, um, which is kind of like a remnant from that, the arson of the library, as a, a kind of marker of what's actually possible um, um, you know, in the real world as a kind of an offering. Um, so in the display, the, the burnt book and the email um, come at the beginning, and it's a kind of a, a concession to Tor's importance in the process, um, because without, without him, really, none of the work that I've made here would have happened. Probably as much as I'll say for, for now. Well, thank you, Thanks. thank you so much, Chris. That was. <laughs> so, um, I'm curious in, in terms of how uh, you know um, Tor and embodying um, different... Uh, That's what you're going to me next, and we just then ask questions later, don't you? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, you're in charge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like it when you're in charge. Um, what is the, oh, it's okay. I think that's a good idea. Let's talk across performative in, in, all the, in all the different aspects, and then I think it will be really interesting to, to come back and look at them in okay. relation to each other. So. Um, I'm delighted to introduce you again to Destiny Deacon. <laughs> and um, uh, I mean, Destiny is, uh, um, I guess, uh, originally you were, you were a teacher and then moved into film and photography, but still very much occupy that position. And in talking and thinking about some of the, the performative in, in your in your practice, it's it um, I guess is quite different to how it operates in Chris's practice. Yeah, um, to take you into a fictional yeah. space, but it's actually about becoming more no, real. I'm and stuck in the real life of poverty yeah. and, 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 and being yeah being scared and coming yeah. up with fear all the time. I kind of think, but. Yeah, and I haven't read Jung and Freud, so I don't fuck it if I know what's all that about. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah. So, well, I'm going to start now. Well, maybe you should go question him a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we're, um, we're all really pleased that, um, that Destiny is in town at this time because um, um, Boo has just opened at Tandanya um, a couple of days ago. So, um, so that's what, what brings Destiny over here um, at at the moment, so um, yeah. I think so I just thought I'd start. I'm not a performing artist, but you know, um, anyway, you couldn't afford it if I if I had to. But um, <laughs> only just yeah, yeah, take only just taking pictures, not cracking the pot, and having a few ideas. But I just want to take you all back. Picture this. I think it was 1993, and I was speaking at the Alice Hall here during the um, and then they'd been early, and I got up like this. So I'll do a bit of performing now, um, <laughs> and I went. Like this. What am I? Like this. What am I? Invisible. Wasn't that deep for 93? 
So, Boris, you got the pictures? Yeah, I'm not a performing artist, although I've done some performing over the years, but I get other people to perform for me, so, which means you come up with ideas and um, usually I've got a curator on my back, you know, the show's got to happen, so I have to nab uh, a family member or a friend, you know, and just, and they really don't know what they're doing, but I just said, you've got to do this, you've got to pose, you know, and you look this way, <laughs> and so they do it, you know, just shout them at Shout him a couple of beers and a Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, and he flops your arm So, where's my pictures, darling? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, this is, yes, yeah, so I was going to talk about Boo a bit, but, yeah, that's the old um, Lunar Park um, place that, uh, it's changed now in St Kilda um, in Melbourne. Now they've got sort of one that looks like the Sydney one, you know, it's sort of all goony looking. But this was a beauty, and, um, yeah, it was just sort of old and decayed, and, um, I don't normally like taking pictures out outdoors because I'm shy photographer, and um, and I was shaking like a leaf. And I, and I, I had a Polaroid camera in those days. Um, so every time you click, it's like you know, like two bucks. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and, um <laughs> and there's people, you know, nice, happy, happy, smiling families around, and, uh, and so I managed to just sort of yeah, shake like a leaf, and I went bang, and yeah, got it. And it's called Whitey's Watching. Yeah, because I sort of grew up in that sort of area. We've had it stayed at um, places that are, you know, boarding houses, a poor family, believe it or not. And, um, yeah, and that was always there watching over us and stuff and that kind of thing. And that's part of the, uh, the curator picked it uh, to, to work at, um, as an image for the curtains for um, the Boo Show because, I don't know, it's sort of like, you know, come in and you know, inside and stuff. Yeah. I'm getting all nervous now all of a sudden. And yeah, no, that's right. And performing arts, I have done performing arts stuff. Um, yeah, but it's, it's really, it really takes a lot out of me. Yeah, you've got to sort of um, be, be an actor and stuff. And I'm no Maggie Smith, you know. I try. And, um, <laughs> and I end up, <laughs> and I end up, you know, mucking things up and whatever because I get so nervous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... A, a performing means to me, you know, like a person that's a singer, a dancer, um, yeah, or, you know, you've got people that are doing the poets, poetry sort of performing stuff and what have you, but, yeah, when you're, uh, when you're just taking pictures, um, but getting people to perform, so you can entertain the audience, you know, entertain the public for free, might I add, yeah, and, uh, which is basically what, yeah, so, this is, a, uh, this is a, some works I made uh, that's uh, not in the... Uh, Tandania show, but it was sort of made. I just used my brother Johnny Harding, who's a really naughty, he's a playwright. I think he's had shows here at the Adelaide Festival and stuff, and um, up in Sydney and stuff. And um, he's very naughty, a playboy, and just what have you. So I just got him, um, yeah, to to be certain characters. So that's sort of shake it up, get going. And that's him playing a Sheila. <laughs> it's, it's called Waiting for a Lift. <laughs> but, no, but nobody's coming to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, just just called trouble. Yeah, so he just sort of did all these things in a, in a you know, like in a, a space of um, a few hours, I think. Yeah, because you know they say hurry up, hurry up. I've got a bit of things to do. <laughs> yep. 
and then, and then he had to <laughs> be a piper. I don't know. And so I get this, like this fellow, you know, he has his strange ideas, I my strange ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, so I've got to perform yeah, doing that and <coughs> what have you. I don't know, just sort of some sort of, I don't know, you, you grow up and you have sort of images in your head and you just think, well, you know, you can make it happen. Okay, darling. Oh, and this is the work that's showing in, at the Tandania and it's Blackula. And that's Blackula rising, coming out of the coffin. And the coffin, it's, actually, it's an actual coffin, I've, and I, I don't know, I must have had some bubbly that night. It's my, made by some Nigerian guy. Ghana. Ghana. Cost me about, what, what's that, about? $800. Two grand. So. I must have been cashed up in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm stuck with it, and it's shaped like, it's shaped like a shark. <laughs> Can't give it away. <laughs> so I thought I'd not really use it as a coffin, but yeah, you know, give, give me money's worth. So I've got the poor bastard to jump in it and pretend he's Dracula. Okay. So he's, yeah, so he's getting out of the coffin. Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> and. Oh, and that's, that's him, and, and that's, yeah, Blackula, Blackula's daughter as well, yeah. And sort of, you know, they pass the venom on, and then they go on to the next, and then she passes it on to, and that's Joey Guy, who's a, a famous indigenous um, singer. And, yeah, so that's basically it. It's, it's performing to me means sort of getting people to do something for you, so, you know, that, with your ideas, just pretty normal compared to some. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know, cause, um, I don't know every, everyone can take photos these days and everyone's got those phones they go bang bang and so I don't know uh, you've just got to have some sort of idea and you've just got to get, make people sort of do it for you otherwise you know I could be a nature photographer but I'm scared of nature and I'm scared of the bush that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and like I told you, take that one at Luna Park, I was shaking off the leaf because I was outside. <laughs> so I'd rather people sort of inhabit my space and make them do, you know, my sort of naughty, not really naughty get thoughts. Get them yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, because, you know, when, the, when I think of performing artists, you know, this, I've seen my take, I remember men barking like dogs and with plastic sword fights and stuff, you know, performing us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I don't think I saw it at Tika too. Yeah, and that kind of thing. So, I don't know, I don't even think there's... Is there many indigenous people involved with performing arts? Well, otherwise it's mainly singing and dancing and... Also they're quiet. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, but I guess there's, a, there's an interesting relationship to, to, to Chris's work in terms of having to go into a fictional space to be able to deal with those and then inviting different friends, family members, poets to act out act yeah. out a lot of those you know, anxieties or issues and finding a, a space, like you say, where, where you can do that and where you can open up that, yeah. that space to, to actually make those things visible even if they're not able to be spoken about. 
Because normally you, 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 know, you get invited to be, um, I've been exhibiting since um, 1990, so, yeah. and um, yeah, like I said, you've normally you're invited to make some work for um, the, the public galleries, and the curators say whatever the theme is, and I'm like, oh, okay, and um, yeah, and you just sort of come up with something to do with it, yeah, something that's relevant. Um, to now, which is what contemporary art I thought was supposed to be about, you know, what, what, what we're thinking at this time and that time and, and things like that. Yeah, well, I think, um, I think that's a, it's a really interesting um, point to, to, um, to also connect and, and to introduce, with, uh, introduce Sandra and, and Michelle. But, Chris, thank you very much no for taking us through. But um, so, so many of you here in the, the audience will know Destiny's work very well and, um, and also Chris's and are able to see their work um, in two different spaces. But um, we're very lucky to have um, Sandra Johnson and Michelle Brown here who um, have been here in, in residence um, over, the, over the past few weeks. They've, um, they're part of an exhibition which is about to open on the 2nd of March? Yes, that's right. Next week. Um, and it's co-curated um, by Michelle and Mary Knights at the Sasser Gallery. Um, and so this is, this is a, a really exciting sort of prelude or, or preview of their practices and a great chance to be able to connect with two of the most innovative interdisciplinary um, artists working in Ireland at the moment. And I know that's true because Mary told me, and, um, but, but also because, um, because she spent quite a lot of time researching and, um, and connecting with your practices and, and seeing your performances and, and hearing your lectures. Um, so I might just give everyone a bit of a, back, a, a very short bio on, on each of you and then I'll hand over. So, um, so Sandra, Sandra Johnson is a performance artist from Northern Ireland and you're currently the senior lecturer um, at Northumbria University in Newcastle um, and um, has also been a, a, a research fellow at the University of Belfast for quite a few years. And over time, she's um, developed a practice-based investigation into the trauma of place. So a very interesting connection, and I think there'll be some, some great discussions between um, Destiny's practice and, and the way you've responded to the history of Belfast. Um, uh, and um, the trauma of place, which um, is explored, um, exploring how aspects of collective memory connected to specific locations can become altered um, in the wake of violent events. Um, so um, Sandra also um, re uh, is a PhD uh, student and uh, created, wrote a, an amazing PhD um, called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, which was an investigation of doubt, risk, and testimony, and using performance art um, and performance art processes in relations um, around systems of legal justice. So there's a lot, a lot going on there, um, and. Um, but Sandra's been very active, very involved in um, many different artist-run collectives in Belfast, um, including Catalyst Arts and um, Beyond an Agency. And so we're really thrilled and, and you know, very honoured to, to have you here. So thank you very much. Um, I'll also introduce you to Michelle because you've been travelling together and you're both going to be in the show and, and also have collaborated and know each other's work um, intimately. Um, so um, Michelle's an artist as well as a curator. Um, currently based in Dublin, and she founded Out of Sight, which is a, a festival of live art um, around the public spaces in Dublin. 
um, and she was responsible for presenting performance by, performances by over 40 national and international artists, artists across Dublin. Um, she's worked with many different um, Irish performance artists and similarly to um, Sandra is deeply engaged with um, ideas around social issues and, um, and contemplating um, the history of, of place in, in your practice. Um, both of you have, everyone here has extraordinary bios, um, but I think um, it would be great to talk to some of those recent practices, but also um, I guess what's, what's coming up <coughs> as well, and then we can open up the discussion more broadly around how the performers function. But I'll hand over to both of you. I'll go first because I'm nervous. Uh, and uh, I really wish I'd bought my own coffin already. That would be great. You can have it. Oh, there's one in the shape of a shark. I want it. It's for sale, don't worry. I'll buy it. So, um, usually I'm a little bit more prepared than this, but um, there's just a. Can you speak up, sir, just a little bit sort of back here? So there's just um, a few random images. Um, you know, as, as Lee said, my um, practice is very much to do with contested spaces and the history of locations. And I was born in 1968 in Belfast. And if anyone knows anything about Irish history, that was the beginning of the Troubles. Um, so the first 30 years of my life were in, in war. And really, that has completely affected the nature of my practice. Uh, I was a painter. I have made a lot of um, video installations and a lot of photography works, but um, the main thing that continues through my art is um, ephemeral art and, and working just through and with a total dependence on my body and a sense too that it's uh, encyclopedic and that everything I live and experience sits within the body and can be um, or has to be worked through and with you know. so for example I, until yesterday I, I've been in Yindamu for the last two weeks and what the performance that I make next week will have almost nothing to do with Yindamu because it's going to take me you know, quite a while into the future to really understand what that experience has been. So there's a sense of absorbing, and it's not um, a literal or a direct um, translation. It, it has to be lived with, you know, um, and brought into form at some point in the future. So I've, I've worked a lot in places like Ukraine, Poland, um, Israel, you know, it's it's amazing for me to travel as a performance artist because you, it's a, it's not inside the art world of Biennales. Um, it's very much um, hand to mouth and uh, an expanded community of artists who live making nothing from their art. Um, I teach to support my addiction, which is performance, and. I, I love the fact that after performance there's nothing, you know, you sweep up the floor, you throw it into trash bags and it's just an act of memory and for me that's very, very important and at different points in my career there's been no documentation 
and that was a decision that I made, a kind of career suicide, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm fine with, you know. Uh, and actually, as I get older, the PhD in a way was um, about this awful sense of um, justification that we have as artists, particularly if you make ephemeral work, you know, there's always um, a pressure on, to, on you about the disappearance of everything that you do. Um, but I feel in increasingly strong um, about what is passed on. Um, so maybe if you could show a couple of images. Uh, Dominic, Dominic is also here in Adelaide, um, wonderful performance arts from Dublin. Um, we've collaborated occasionally. Another thing I really like about performance art is, is the collaborative aspect. I mean, as Destiny was talking about, like, it becomes, um, you know, uh, we're kind of like family in that the more you work with other performers and um, the kind of one-star hotels that you wake up in and the scrambled egg that you eat and the biscuits that you share in the middle of the night and the, the, the kind of the physicality of how you um, come together in performative situations and the rawness of that is, is very much um, part, part of what feeds me as an artist in that um, I couldn't just make solo work. Um, I feel very strongly that I get a lot of heart and I get a lot of inspiration from the proximity and the, the knock-on effect of working with other people's bodies and stealing their materials. <laughs> I suppose in a way like Chris, like when I started as a performance artist, it was in Belfast in 1990, 1991, and um, I did create personas at that point um, because I had no courage in myself and I created a series of um, paramilitary characters that I lifted off the walls. Uh, if you know in, in Belfast there's these famous murals which are to do with the conflict and I would like lift um, figures off the walls and become that persona um, and perform in the middle of the night in the streets um, for myself. I would um, bury my mother's clothes in the grounds and bring them out two months later and wear them, wear them on a journey through the landscape. And for, so for the first four years, the work that I made, I didn't call performance. Um, I just um, did stuff. <laughs> I think I'm the only normal one here. Yeah. <laughs> personas and the other faces and surfaces have dropped away and, and for me that, that kind of filtering is um, very much what keeps me performing. So, um, yeah, a couple more. This was a, an event that um, Michelle curated last year which was in Dublin Castle and that was the seat of English power in Ireland for 800 years. And how she got us permission to perform in that building, I'll never know. Very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is in the state, the state room. Um, it's a four-hour performance with um, 100 um, euros. 
in one one cent pieces. Um, and you know, so often I, I choose a material and it's about working with that thing. As John Cage would say, taking something to the point of boredom and then, and then beyond. So I am particularly interested in durational durational practices. That's also in in Dublin Castle. That's Michelle. Okay, I'm going to move on to Michelle. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really lovely to hear Sandra talk because quite often we're so busy making work we don't talk to each other about it, you know. Um, and it's interesting what you said because about this idea of never being more yourself when you're in a performance. Um, and um, Chris talked a lot about kind of creating these characters to avoid the self and the baggage. And what's interesting about performance in this, the way that we think about it, the way that we make it, is that you you have to find something in yourself that you might not you, you might not be given the opportunity to do in in everyday life. So you find this you find this kind of strength and this kind of um, power within yourself that you don't quite realise you have until you're. You're, you set about um, doing something in front of an audience, and sometimes you're not in front of the audience because it might be a really long piece. Like I'd say, you know, we did a show where we were performing for eight hours. For um, oh, um, there were three shows of these eight-hour performances, and particularly for one, there was lots of parts of the day where there, there was just the performers in the space, and those moments. You know, I was interested in you talking about doing these things, and I was wondering how you approached um, that moment where you're on your own and you're trying to be—you're trying to be this thing or this person for you—and um, to hold on to that. And I was—I'd be interested to hear you talk about that, about how much you're, 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 you hold that um, in these actions. But quite often, it can be that moment where you're confronting yourself and your own kind of your own strength and your own power to persevere within something that you might be kind of like losing faith in and I think there are weird analogies with um, or kind of correlations with how you live your life you know and there it, it's it's only when you're in the middle of it that you realize like okay this performance might be about you know some kind of social situation but actually in a lot of ways it's about how we live our life in relation to other people and in relation to ourselves so when Sandra was talking about um, Performing with other people, I, I work with Dominic Thorpe um, quite a lot um, in um, a group called the Performance Collective. But there's five, so we do we, we do these kind of um, you know mini durational performances. Quite often, they're somewhere between two and six hours, so that's like not tremendously long in the big scheme of things, but but long enough that you're kind of confronted by people and you have to. The, the performances are. Um, improvised, so we know we're going in with a set of um, tools or a set of materials that we want to work with, but then we have to see how we do that all together. And you bump up against each other, like you do on the street, when you're walking down the street and you bump into them because they're going that way and you're going this way. And in a performance you find those moments and you have to find a way to work in and around each other. And in that, in those moments, you're also kind of um, telling a lot about actually how we all interact with, with each other. So um, 
this is from a performance that I did with Dominic, it was a two-hander and it was probably about an hour long. We were working with particular materials. This is what we affectionately call the horse, but it was a really old um, um, gymnastics horse that um, existed in the space. We did a two-week exhibition where we performed for four hours every day, um, the collective, and then we would do these shorter performances together. So we decided that we'd work with um, the horse and the table, some spoons and some flour. And so in this, the horse kind of becomes alive. It ended up on my chest um, by accident, but it becomes alive through the, the movement of my body. So I'm kind of, earlier on we were talking, they were talking about animism and animating objects, and thinking about how you make the object more, um, I suppose, alive. Um, and in a way, often, these objects take on these lives because they kind of form the bridge between the, the people that are in the room and performing together. And often the object can be the bridge between you as a solo performer and the audience. Because you as an audience member have a relationship to a spoon. You know, you think of it in a particular way, but I might be doing something completely different with that spoon. And so um, it creates a dynamic, and I guess what I'm interested in and why I suppose I often say I'm never doing this again and then I go back to performances that there's something about that relationship and that banging up together of me as a performer and you as an audience member and me as a performer and another performer and how we have to negotiate with each other. Um, so I think they're the kind of things that I'm interested in. And also within my curatorial <coughs> practices, um, I, I'm, I mostly curate performance. and. Um, I'm kind of interested in how you can kind of insert performance into play, um, places to kind of tell a different story or to get people to kind of think about or look at the space anew. So the, um, the show in Dublin Castle was called um, These Movable Walls Performing Power at Dublin Castle and it was really interesting because it was a complete negotiation to get into that space, like a very long, arduous negotiation because of it's it, because of it being so central to Irish history, um, and also because it still it still acts as a kind of um, a representation of all of that history. So for us to be able to go in to do these acts, um, there was a constant questioning of how that gets read and how it impacts on the way that people might view the history and how they might view the place. Um, so it was kind of funny. One of there was a um, a Czech artist um, called Katrzyna Sheda and she wanted to um, have uh, the opportunity for the audience to pay a special kind of fee to throw a, a paper airplane at the window and this became a really big deal because of this kind of whether people should be allowed to do those acts. So really simple, it's about these kind of simple acts that we have to kind of negotiate. Um, and often as the curator, I have this whole other performative experience of kind of trying to negotiate how, how, you, how you can kind of view that or make it speak to the history in a way that's not too confrontational to the powers that be because there's, there's all of this, um, there's a huge amount of security but there's a real protection, there's a real kind of state protection of that history and how it's read. And it's a very interesting time at the moment in Ireland because of it's the um, centenary of the 1916 Rising, which was the rebellion that basically kicked off um, this, the founding of the Irish state. Um, and 
right now there's all of these different, I suppose, kind of interests trying to um, figure out how we portray that history. And um, I suppose the Dublin Castle show was really interesting in the sense that it was kind of trying to look at it from many different kind of perspectives, but not holding on to this one narrative or this grand narrative of what the history had been. So um, I, I think they're the kind of things that I've, I'm interested in and how performance can sit within all of that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandra. And thank you well, I think um, everyone sitting here on this panel is um, definitely very actively you know, renegotiating and rewriting different narratives and um, performing different narratives um, <coughs> through their work. And I think what's interesting is it sort of brings, brings us all back to um, the topic of um, of, uh, of this panel, which uh, revolves around um, belief, power structures, and then the, the performative. So I think that's uh, it's a really interesting way um, of, of coming back to those ideas of, of, of using performance to negotiate power, both of the, the author within yourself, and then also the powers that be, um, and also to, to, to reinvent and reinterpret and find new ways of speaking and representing those histories or thinking into the future. Um, I think I'd like to open up to the audience here um, to, um, to to start some some questions. Uh, I know it's been we've been talking non-stop for yeah. Uh, Have we finished yet? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit longer. Um, yeah. So um, I'd like to open up some questions to to the floor. I've got one for for Chris because I think it's um, your work is slightly to one side of the other. As a as a viewer, you know, I first look at this work and I think you're messing with us. You know, it's it's super fun and you know you sort of I guess there's a fair amount of you sort of suspending not only our disbelief but your own in this work. And just my questions around commitment to character sure. and you know hearing you speak about placing the reason you know a big driver for this is actually so you can create new work. Yeah but without yourself embodying that work. Mm. So then, why not actually show that work as yourself, yeah. rather than as taught? Yeah, I mean, it's always the work's, I mean, usually shown under my name, um, but in terms of um, authorship, um, I used to actually, um, this is about 10 years ago, I went through um, a stage of uh, painting paperback books where I used myself as the author, um, and they became quite, seemingly quite autobiographical, and even if they weren't autobiographical, simply using yourself as the author um, lent that assumption that, that what was happening was kind of directly related to, to your life in, in some way. Um, so I kind of used to find that quite um, irritating in a way, I suppose, or maybe just um, it kind of led people down a path that I didn't want to lead them down. Um, um, so... Um, I began actually just by inventing pseudonyms, and they don't—they weren't performance acts. They were just names that I'd work under um, as a kind of um, a starter. Um, and I'd actually show work under these names, so people weren't usually—they weren't often aware that it was my work. So the practice was less known back then. Um, so they kind of operated as um, as fictions. Um, but um, it's. Um, when you talk about commitment to character, um, 
Um, for me, um, you know, I'm I'm a visual artist, and so the the performance works. The performances are always geared towards um, um, uh, like a visual outcome, and sometimes that's in the form of documentation, or it could be in the form of of um, using it for some sort of generative purpose, like creating text or imagery. Um, but I also like just being in the character. I mean, it's really stimulating. Um, and they're usually, they're, they're very short kind of bursts, um, and I get done what I need to get done. Um, um, and then I just come out and I'm back to my regular self, normal self. So hypothetically slash not hypothetically, yeah. if Tors was to be invited to a rise fest, we would Tors turn up? No. No, because he's, um, I mean, he is a, he's a private character, so it's, it's um, performance without audience, so it's, and, and that's probably the reason why I um, gave him the house and backyard as a kind of limiter, so he's never emerged from the fence line. The neighbours aren't aware that he exists, which is <laughs> probably a good thing. Um, um, and my wife and kids have kind of become, have become you know, more used to the idea of tour creeping around at night and doing his own thing. Um, so, but it, it, it's a kind of a, it's part of a private kind of methodology. So not, it's not, a, not designed, I mean, it looks like it's designed for spectacle, but really it's just designed for my own personal use. Have you ever actually speak for a weekend? I mean, no. so the words are all made up. It's all, um, the funny thing is, I mean, I don't speak any European languages at all, um, but um, after doing the, the, the vocalisation, I went into um, Google Translate and tried to get some some idea of where the language actually comes from, and it, um, it's a mixture of looks like a mixture of Afrikaans and Dutch, with a little bit of German and French um, thrown in. And I came up with some really quite unsettling um, translations <laughs> of, of of these titles, which I, I won't go into detail here. Um, but um, yeah, I do like the idea of practice being kind of cyclical. So there'll be um, things that happen that generate other forms, and then um, and they'll suggest other things, and then and then you actually find that. You're not actually somewhere else, you're just back at the start where you were before. And I find that pretty fascinating. Do you know anything about Nordic Lark? What's that? Have you ever heard of Nordic Lark? Lark? Yeah. No. It's, it stands for live action role play, and it okay. really sounds like that's oh, what okay. you're doing. Oh, okay. I thought it was really funny that oh, it's cool. Norwegian. I was like, yeah. you must be totally into it. It's just practice. Apparently, apparently, it's the second most popular kind of pastime after soccer in Norway. Oh, really? And that oh. they're these particular kind of scripts, kind of like what you're talking oh, okay. about, that, that you're you're given a kind of persona to be oh, okay. within it, That's, but you have yeah. to live through it and do all of your actions. It's, and sometimes they can go on for days. And it's, it's private? Yeah. Or? It, yeah, there's no audience. Oh, right. It's like the audience is the group of people that are working It doesn't together. surprise me because I mean, I've always been fascinated by extreme forms of heavy metal music and Norway is the epicentre of um, the black metal music movement, which I've had a long fascination with. Um, and Tor's characters kind of emerged out of the aesthetics of that mm-hmm. movement. So it doesn't throw you, it is interesting. I'll yeah. definitely look into that. Yeah. Yeah. Sandra and Michelle, I'm, I'm really curious about the way you often work in very contested spaces or with contested sort of issues. And maybe, Sandra, you, you made a... Um, a comment about how in Belfast, during the Troubles, you would actually take <coughs> images from murals and then begin to enact those very people in the middle of the night. And I'm just wondering, that must be have been an incredibly dangerous thing to do. What was the audience response? Or, you know, the public response? Well, there was... Uh, 
I mean, it, they were completely private in that um, it was too dangerous. Uh, but it was a, a whole situation of surveillance. Um, where inside the community, it, it wasn't just the security forces and the armed forces that were watching you with <coughs> helicopters and patrol cars the whole time. Also, the paramilitaries surveyed you within your own community. Um, the idea of protection, uh, which meant that you basically, you know, everybody knew what you had for breakfast, uh, and it was very. Um, very confrontational to have no privacy. So I, I forced the privacy out of these characters because they were my protectors, but they were my enemy. And by, by dressing as them, uh, I, I kind of wanted to absorb some of their power. But it, I didn't call it art. I didn't call it anything. It was a sort of therapy. Um, but I think, you know, within performance art practice, it, it is a discipline. and. A lot of it is deeply private. You know, the, the moments when you stand in front of an audience are this tiny, tiny percentage of the totality of your life that's making that possible. I mean, I, I'm quite, I'm quite a shy person. If you'd asked me 25 years ago that I would be doing performance art, I mean, there's no way. And I think it was the desperation of the situation in Belfast that took me over that edge. You know, into um, creating a fantasy that I could escape into, which then ironically has, has come full circle in that now um, I can inhabit and create performances in spaces that have very charged histories. But sometimes it's got to be, got to be so, so subtle. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in performance that's on the cusp of invisibility. I mean, that, that fascinates me how, you know, um, an artist in Romania during Ceausescu's reign can make a performance that's about crossing the road in a certain way. You know, and, and all throughout the world where there's situations of conflict, um, performance is a survival mechanism and it's not often called art, but it's a way of um, dealing with the oppressiveness and finding a sort of deviance that gives you agency. Um, just following on from what you're talking about, it's so interesting because you know, I guess it makes me think of theatre of the oppressed yeah. and how that, uh, um, the, and linking it to place, how somehow place dreams us up to act in certain ways as a way of keeping something in place in collective memory. I wonder if that's something that you think about or you thought about. I think an awful lot of my work has, has been about um, commemoration, you know. The, some of the, the, I made work in, I've made about six pieces in homage to a woman called Margaret Wright, who was murdered in 1994. And uh, her body was dumped naked in a wheelie bin, uh, and she was shot four times in the head after being tortured. And a lot of, um, a, a lot of the, Part of why Northern Ireland was um, a really ugly war was that it was very personal. Um, people were often murdered by somebody they knew. It was really sort of door to door. Um, and that's why there was such a strong sense of revenge and people being dragged into the, into the war um, 
by proximity, you know, uh, something happening to somebody you love is a very great incentive to retaliate, you know. And uh, this woman, Margaret Wright, was, was, was murdered um, two streets from where I was living. And within two days of that, um, I was violently attacked um, very close by. And again, as I say, like I, I sort of stepped over a certain edge with performance art in that I was very frightened, but I, I was also compelled to try, you know. And I made, um, I made a series of works in, in homage to Margaret Wright. And in many ways, I feel like I'm still haunted by her and by other, by other women who were, were murdered for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it's so simple when you live in a space that's deeply territorial, um, because on a daily basis you have to go through interfaces. You have no choice, you've got to get to work, you've got to get to university, um, but each time you go through that you are, you're going through um, a sequence of permissions. And performance for me is, is a lot to do with permission, partly by giving yourself permission, um, but also about being respectful and also being um, um, awake to what it might mean to others that you're in that space. You know. So proximity and proximity awareness is, is a lot of what kind of carries for me in, in performance and the reason to make performance in, in spaces. I mean, for example, like Dublin Castle, it may seem, you know, as, as, as Michelle's explained, you know, it's still 800 years on, it still is a charged space, even though it sits in a kind of sterility because it's a museum. Uh, but every single material that I wanted to use was censored. Everything I wanted, they, they were like, no. <laughs> There's a great story about one of the other artists, um, Morris O'Connell, who's an Irish guy who, who was based in the UK. And um, he, does these, he does these really, like almost imperceptible performances in a lot of ways. And he's kind of interested, he does a lot of training um, in particular things that kind of give you a certain role or a way to engage with other people. So he's trained as paramedic and he's trained in to be a personal bodyguard and he's done conflict resolution training and certain things that are about the way that you might engage with someone and that's also through use of language but through kind of body language and how you position yourself and relate to other people and they have kind of notions of authority in, 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 uh, in these roles and all he asked for was to be able to move between the public and the private spaces so you have to think about it it's like that you walk there's kind of a courtyard that's got a building on four sides. One side is like a public museum, which is a state apartment, which is kind of like these fancy rooms that you saw Sandra in with these beautiful columns and beautiful beautiful carpets and gilded frames and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, kind of images of wealth really. And then there's a whole other section that's about, there, there are currently um, government departments still within the building. Um, Revenue operate out of that building. They also have um, uh, a conference center where a lot of kind of the um, state um, tribunals would have been held there into things like um, you know child abuse, um, kind of corruption, all that kind of stuff. So it's really it's really easy because there's so many things that happen there. Um, and he wanted to be able to move between the private and the public spaces just to be able to walk through the doors. And this was inconceivable to them. We were like, what, what's he going to do? Like, 
what if people see him? And what if he goes somewhere where he's not supposed to be? And it was just really interesting because there was this level of level of kind of paranoia because of what happens there and what has happened there. That in the end, it was he got less access than everybody else in the show because he asked for it, you know. Um, but what ended up being interesting was watching the way that he negotiated kind of how to be there after that. So he, he then ended up was he was allowed to give a couple of tours of the building and he almost highlighted a lot of the artifice of the building about how, okay, here's this beautiful mural that's like however many hundred years old with the, just the page chipping off the wall <laughs> and this carpet is coming up over here. You know, so it was kind of like really interesting then to see those two things butt up against each other. Um, and that site is just, yeah, it's also the last place that Ma Ma apparently Margaret Thatcher is the last head of state to have stayed there. And all of that stuff is really still very present yeah, in people's memory. So I asked for that room and they wouldn't, um, they put um, these, um, these like Ming Dynasty vases in there just before I arrived and then they refused to move them. <laughs> <laughs> It was gas now. At the time, it wasn't funny, but yeah. But it was. It, it's yeah. It's just kind of interesting because you do, and then you have to find a way to work in and around that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, it seems like you know there's um you know so much negotiation that has to happen both in a private and public sense, both personally and publicly. And um, I thought, um, you know, and the different, the different mechanisms that have been, been used. And so I wanted to just come back to, to Destiny. Um, what? Because, what? Oh, sorry. I just <laughs> wanted to, you know, I've <laughs> been, been, waiting, been waiting for you to... to um, what do you want to know? Well, just, um, just in terms of the, um, the relationship of humour and um, you know, as, as, a, as a sort of performative device or, you know, the way that you've created... Um, Different, different scenarios or different, different scenographies with different characters, different fictions, almost um, fantasies to be able to inhabit or be able to, you know, think about about history or also the, the um, I guess, I guess also critique um, both. What using humour? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I suppose I don't know. Most things I take really seriously, but, but people don't look at them and think it's funny, you know. And I'm <laughs> how do you explain that, you know? Um, it's, it's um, I don't know. It's just I think it's just the way I've been brought up, or it just everything sort of seems what seems sort of on the straight and narrow to me is is sort of sort of weird to other people, I suppose. Um, and they think it's hilarious or something, and you can't sort of <laughs> can't do anything about it. But uh, I don't know. Humour is really important because you know you've got to. I think um, being a, a, a visual artist for what's it nearly nearly 30 years. Um, You've got to give the um, the punters a bit of entertainment, don't you? Even though they cost nothing to go to galleries these days, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to you know, leave them laughing or something, or thinking and yeah, leave them thinking and, and leave them laughing hopefully. And, and I'm, it does it has amazed me that people actually you know find a joke in, in, in some of the, the work. You know, I suppose it's meant to be funny. So I, I like comedy and stuff, and I've done um, stand-up comedy and stuff before, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Look at early that, and you can't afford me anyway. <laughs> That's a great cameo appearance. Yeah. Um, sorry, there's, uh, there's two questions. I'll take yours first. Yeah, you it's just in oh, you can ask me a question. Yeah, I can oh, ask you a question. <laughs> uh, I see in relation to what Sandra was saying about um, the woman who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and found a wheelie bin, and the, your picture, the 
the story behind the trouble, the woman in the scarf that Johnny was playing, oh, yeah. is it's at those the finished things don't always show the kind of thinking that's gone on behind it, but oh, there's yeah. usually a story. It just looks like the picture of a, a, a normal woman, you know, it's my brother playing a woman. But um, yeah, it was based on a tragic article I read. Um, yeah, oh, she got to, she went to hell, didn't she? That woman. She, she was and I saw some question. Yeah, and I saw some like a mugshot. It was sort of the 40s or something. Yeah, I think the 40s. Yeah, and um, so I got him to play that one. After I read this article about her, and uh, oh, she went through all sorts of torture and stuff. We were in Adelaide. I'm not going to tell you about torture. What, what, what did she say? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she work for a white man? <laughs> I don't know about it. <laughs> Didn't she work for a white man? Who... She worked for a white man, and you know, and she killed him to answer my own. Oh, she, she killed him because he yeah, because he tried to rape her or something. Oh, he did? No, he was always raping her. That's enough. It's too early to talk about So it's based on a mugshot <laughs> with that story. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I should so it functions as an homage as well. In, in yeah, that and that was sort of the after effect of yeah, looking sort of sort of weird. But it's after being, yeah, she killed her, um, yeah, the white boss. That's can I ask a question? Sorry, can I ask you a question just about how it seems like you, there's a certain amount of blurring in the images that you make? Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Because I don't um, know, maybe I'm not a good photographer. I think my hand shakes. No, um, I don't know. It's, it's, I try to um, make the picture sort of like it's a, a movie still or something. Like that they're in motion about something and. Also, I love it. Sort of make, make it a bit more depressing, you know, when it has a blur. You should know about that. <laughs> 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 um, I thought I was the only normal one here, now I'm worried. <laughs> no one's going to get out of here. Um, do we have any more questions before we, we wrap up? Uh, do, sorry, do, I'm sorry, did, did you have a question oh, no, still? No, I'm sorry, I'll come back. about the, the um, blurredness of the Dracula image of the... Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's stunning. I mean, they're fantastic kind of um, um, visual objects to look at, look at, I suppose. You know there's some kind of story there. How, how much do we need to know what that story is? But it's how much that image holds you, I guess. But yeah, I, I, think the, I don't know, call me old-fashioned, but the blurriness gives us sort of a, like a, I don't know, a film still sort of mm-hmm. thing, but... You're catching them in motion, you know? It shows that something's actually happening. That's right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you had a question? Um, Chris, I'm really curious about your approach to making when you plan to enter into a a character or a kind of state of mind. How much of the outcome is intended? Are you surprised by the result that you get? There are two ways I go about it. because I've written a lot of like textual narrative between these characters, um, sometimes that text actually um, prompts certain scenarios to happen, so I act them out. But then there are other times when I'll get into character, uh, like put the wig on, put the makeup on, get into the backyard with absolutely um, no idea about what I'm going to do, and then I just kind of force myself to kind of use whatever's around in that kind of headspace. Um, and that's where it's the most kind of enjoyable for me, so it's kind of liberating and um, and things come out that are really unexpected. Um, and I think, yeah, and it's also possible to do that while um, writing in character as well. I've also found that really um, it, it's um, it's possible to write in the, the guise of someone else 
without any kind of structure. So I ended up writing this book of about 66 emails between Tor, myself, and this residency director, and absolutely, with absolutely no plan. So I'd write one as myself, and then I'd get in character and write one as Tor, and then I'd be um, then I'd be um, Julie Redfern, um, and then it just kind of it just kind of grew from there quite organically without any sense of where it was heading. But they usually head downhill like this. <laughs> so is it, is it a way to sort of... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Do you ever reflect on that? Do you ever kind of journal as, as Chris kind of going towards um, today? Um, no, things just happen usually, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's a way of sort of second-guessing yourself and your anxiety or sort of preempting something by by performing it ahead of time? Uh, in, in terms of, you know, particularly within that relationship of, you know, negotiating with residency directors and, and, and I guess the sort of politics of, of, um, of, of you know, of the art, of the artistic yeah. space. So but good, by good question, it actually. Out, maybe yeah. I've, ne- I mean, I've never been on a residency, so it's completely, it's, it's yeah. something that I've kind of imagined but never acted out, which within is, your own body. which is really my life as, yeah. you know, in one sense. Yeah. Um, you know, living inside your head and kind of, um, Imagining things rather than actually doing things, mm. which artists do a lot of spend a lot of time doing. Yes. Um, and so, um, I had, you know, um, someone once said, asked me if a lot of this is just wish fulfillment, and perhaps you know a portion of it is, or a portion of it is like vaguely therapeutic as well. Mm. Um, but it, it helps to, for me, at the, the primary goal is to kind of like stimulate the practice, um, and it it does that for me. I think that's um, a really great note to, to end on. So thank you very much. Thank you. So yeah, thank you very much to to Chris, to Destiny, to Sandra, and to Michelle. And thanks to everyone in the audience for coming along to think about how performance can be a survival method to gain agency for healing and ultimately for making. So thank you. Enjoy the afternoon.